This morning we'll continue in the Gospel of Luke chapter 10, so you can look on page 6 of your bulletin and you will find a very brief little passage from Luke there. And this is a very well-known passage, so kind of like last week with the Good Samaritan parable, uh, we have something of the burden of familiarity, probably, I imagine that you probably know this little passage here. It's a little story about discipleship. It's really, I think, ironically, um, the perfect text to preach from on November 11, because um, 10 days from now, a similar scene might unfold in your own house. Thanksgiving, right? So uh, this might look familiar to you, perhaps, I don't know. Uh, Young Christians, you young ones who are still here with us and not in worship training, as you listen to this uh, little passage from Luke, you'll notice that a woman is upset with her sister. See if you can tell why. And do you think that she has a right to be upset with her sister? This is Luke chapter 10, verse 38 to 42. Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village. And a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me alone to to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Father, again, we pray that you would help us this morning, that you would be in our midst and working by your spirit in our minds and in our souls. And allow us, Lord, to see your good news in this, your word. We pray, Father, that you would change us, that you would sanctify us, that you would draw us close to you by the work of your grace. And allow us, Father, to see that you love us yet again on this, your day. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You can be seated. Then he got up on top with a tip of his hat. I call this game fun in a box, said the cat. In this box are two things I will show to you now. You will like these two things, said the cat with a bow. I will pick up the hook. You will see something new. Two things, and I call them thing one and thing two. These things will not bite you. They want to have fun. Then out of the box came thing two and thing one. And they ran to us fast. They said, how do you do? Would you like to shake hands with thing one and thing two? A little Sunday bonus for you. A little poetry, a little rhyme, a little Dr. Seuss for you on this Sunday morning. It's that story of a a young brother and sister left at home by a mom out running errands on a rainy day, and they have nothing to do, and they are bored until a cat in a hat shows up with his tricks and with his two things and their kites. And while mom is away, these two things do as things can do, and they make a mess of the house, running with their kites through the house, knocking things off the walls and walls. 
lamps off tables overturning furniture. And it's almost as famous as this story in Luke's gospel. Maybe, maybe even more famous than Luke's story here in his gospel about these two disciples and their things and the resulting mess in their house. Because discipleship with Jesus can get messy. As disciples learn to understand the things that come along with discipleship. What things come along with discipleship? Well, many things come along with it. Easy things and hard things. Expected things and surprise things. Common things and unusual things even. But all of them are good things. And they're all redemptive things that come along with discipleship. Now this seems perhaps to you like an odd story to include in Scripture. It should, if you pause and think about it. Because it's just a petty squabble become between a couple of siblings. <clears throat> I mean, how common and ordinary is that? And here it is in, in Scripture. It's a, a sibling rivalry gone bad. And what good is such a story in the inspired, inerrant, and authoritative Word of God? How does it possibly belong here? But of course you know that these two women aren't the only squabblers in Scripture. The the men squabbled too, right? The, The twelve disciples had their own petty squabbles about who's the greatest, I'm the greatest among us. No, I am. No, no, he is, I think. No, I am. Well, how about this? Who's going to sit at Jesus' right hand in his kingdom? I think I'm going to sit there. No, I am. Mom said I'm going to sit there. No. These are the squabbles that the disciples had. And so, you know, what, what might you expect from any of his disciples, Martha and Mary included? <clears throat> but the most interesting thing, I think, about this This story is something that doesn't stand out to you, and certainly not just on the page in your bulletin without the context around it. You'd kind of have to take a look at Luke's gospel to see this. The most interesting thing I think about this little story is that it's not in the right place, chronologically speaking anyway. Martha and Mary lived in a village called Bethany. That's common knowledge in the gospel accounts. You find that in other places. Jesus visited them on other occasions. It was their brother Lazarus whom he raised from the dead. It's known that Martha and Mary lived in Bethany, which is a village just outside of Jerusalem. It's really close to Jerusalem. It's just to the east of of the city of Jerusalem. And at this point in Luke's gospel... That's not where Jesus is. In chapter 9, just the previous chapter to this one, Luke tells us that Jesus, at this point in his ministry, set his face resolutely to go to Jerusalem. And in the next nine chapters, through the the middle of Luke's gospel, which we're just now entering in this sermon series, is the travel narrative of Jesus and his disciples traveling south from Galilee on their way to Jerusalem, they would not have arrived in Bethany until much later in the journey. And so that's not where they are at this point in the narrative. So Luke actually imports this account to this point in his narrative to make a point about discipleship. 
disciples have learned the lessons of the 72 that Jesus sent out, the lessons about the kingdom of God that we saw a couple of weeks ago. Disciples express their devotion to that kingdom by loving their neighbor because they themselves have been loved by the Good Samaritan himself. And disciples like Martha and Mary, disciples like James and John, disciples like you and me struggle and wrestle with things. And so Luke places this here just before a long stretch of teaching and parables so that we as disciples will recognize the problem with good things. The problem with good things. Now, Martha is, of course, very easy to vilify here in this passage. And, and that's, you know, as we read this, we, we might quickly think Martha is, is the bad one here. She's kind of like the, the Snickers commercial. You know, she's, she gets cranky when she's hungry. And she's working on dinner, and she's hungry, and she's cranky. And so, we, you know, it's easy to kind of vilify Martha here. <clears throat> Things aren't going her way. But don't be so quick to, to judge Martha. What Martha's doing is a good thing. I mean, Luke tells us she welcomed him into her house. This is a good thing. This is a really good thing. In fact, this is what we in our modern day call hospitality. And, and modern Christians like, like we are would maybe even at times call this a spiritual gift. And when we do refer to it that way, it's usually because we want an excuse to not exercise it. I don't have that spiritual gift, so don't come to my house. Go to somebody else's. You know, we recognize that hospitality is an important thing. But for Martha, it wasn't just a matter of exercising a spiritual gift. It was a very important aspect of life in the ancient world, life in the Middle East. It was part of the culture. You received people into your home and you shared with them what you had. A year or two ago, one of my boys and I had the opportunity to be the delivery guys for a set of furniture, some beds for a refugee family that the Mullins had connected us with. Someone was selling some of their things on an estate sale and they had a, a day hideaway bed or two that they were practically giving away. So we went and and acquired these beds, took them apart, put them in the van, and, and transported them to this refugee's family's apartment. A man and his wife and their six young boys. They had nothing in their apartment except for a sofa that was a hand-me-down. And they had no beds in their bedrooms. Three-bedroom apartment, family of eight. And we brought these beds into the house, and the father showed us where to put them. His English was very broken, so it's a little hard to communicate with with him and the rest of them didn't speak English at all. And we helped to set up these beds with the father. And then we were about to leave as, as good Americans will do. You know, let's get, let us get out of your way and we'll just be on our way. No, that was not going to happen. They would not allow us to leave. He said, you've got to come in here to our living room where we saw that the wife had spread a blanket on the floor and covered it with food. Plates and plates of food. And they wanted us to sit down as we did. We sat down with them on the floor and for, I don't know, an hour, we sat there and shared food with them. They, they gave us everything they had. We weren't even hungry. It wasn't mealtime, but they wanted to give to us their hospitality because they wanted to honor their guests. That's what Martha's doing here. She's honoring her guests. And her guest of honor is the most important person in the world. 
So what she's doing is a good thing. But the problem is, good things distract us. They distract us. Verse 40, the scene that's unfolding in her home is a remarkable scene. And yet Luke tells us Martha was distracted with much serving. Again, her hospitality is a good thing. We we have to commend Martha for what she's doing, but she can't see the big picture here. She can't recognize what's really unfolding in her living room, as it were. You know, we were meant for good things. I don't want to vilify Martha, and I don't want to vilify good things either. The Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy. He said, Everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected, but received with thanksgiving. We were made for good things, and good things were made by God for our enjoyment and for our good. And yet good things distract us. Yesterday, I made a Sam's run. I went over to Sam's warehouse, you know, Sam's wholesale megastore across the street over here. And I was over there in order to pick up a couple of pork shoulders to roast, which I'm dry rubbing, roasting today. And I'll bring them to Seoul this evening. And if you want some, come to Seoul. (laughs) I'm just saying, that's my sales pitch for you. That'll be there on the potluck table. If you don't come, you don't get any. You see what I'm doing? I'm tempting you with good things. And now you're distracted. You're thinking about pork, pulled pork, and you're going to forget about the sermon. See, good things distract us. That's what they do. But, you know, as I pulled into the the parking garage over there, I was amazed at how it was packed with cars. It was like a holiday weekend, and the crowds inside that big store were holiday crowds. And I was struck yet again by the scene that was there in that big place. Televisions and cameras and electronic gadgets and clothing and furniture and toys and food. Oh, the food. It's canned food and boxed food and packaged food and frozen food and fresh food and baked food. All kinds of food. In fact, there's so much food, it's stacked on pallets up to the ceiling by forklifts in that massive warehouse. There are so many good things in the place. And yet the funniest thing to watch in a place like that is the interaction, or lack thereof, that happens among parents and children as they run through that that massive warehouse of things. The children go by the the toy aisle and they see some flashing lights and they take off because they're distracted. They see something for them. But mom and dad, they've seen the display of the new appliance down the aisle here and that's where they're headed. And, And they're both so distracted they can't remember that they even came with each other and that they need to leave with each other in a little while. And they're all headed off into different directions. But, you know, it's not just products that distract us. It's activities. We're also, you know, as we say, busy. Our calendars are loaded. I had to confess to our home group recently that having home group was even just kind of hard for our family because we just we hardly have time for extra things besides what we have on our calendar. There's just so much. We have so many things to do. It's all good things. But we're distracted, and because our hearts are idle factories, good things don't just distract us. They consume us. They consume us. Martha is apparently the head of her household. Evidently, here in, in this account, there's no mention of, of a husband. Martha's the head of her household, and she's responsible, responsible for all that goes on there in her home. And she is busy. She's 
consumed with busyness because of all of her responsibilities. Kevin DeYoung is a pastor in North Carolina. Some of you know of him. Maybe you've read a book by him. He wrote a book a few years ago called Crazy Busy. It's a a relatively short book, 100 pages or so. It it won't take you too long in your busy schedule to read it. It's called Crazy Busy. And in there, he, he writes about some of the primary reasons why we are so busy, why we in our culture make ourselves to be so busy. We're consumed with all the things that we have to do around us. And he explains that one of the primary reasons why we are so busy is because of pride. We're proud. And he kind of works his way through, I think, what he calls the killer P's of pride. And he explains some of them. He says, one of the things that we're after is people-pleasing. We like to please people around us. We say yes to everything. We hardly say no ever. I mean, when's the last time you said no to a request? We want to say yes because we want people to be pleased with us and to like us. And so we want to please people, and that's because we're proud. And we want pats on the back. We like to be patted on the back and complimented and affirmed. Why? Because it builds us up and it makes us, well, it feeds our pride. We like to be patted on the back. And he said another reason is for our pride is an indication of our pride is our performance evaluation. That is, we evaluate our own performance as being much better than it really is. And so we assume that our performance is really required. That we need to do this or that because you know, somebody else isn't going to do it right. I'm not guilty of this, but I bet you are. No, I'm the worst of us. Somebody else is not going to do it the way it needs to be done. My performance is better, so I need to busy myself with doing it. And another indication of it is our possessions. You know, in our culture, we acquire lots of things. Listen, I understand. I'm in that world with you. And we do it because we need to maintain a certain standard of living because, well, if I don't, if I don't have that standard of living, then I'm gonna, people are going to think less of me. They're not going to pat me on the back. My pride is feeding into that. And we also seek to prove ourselves. That's a big one. Our pride shows up as we seek to prove ourselves to the people around us. So many of us live our lives trying to prove ourselves to our family, to our parents, to our mentors, to a coach or a teacher, to a boss. We're trying to prove ourselves all the time. Why? Because we want to look good in front of those people. We want them to affirm us because we're too proud to be less than what we think that we ought to be. Another reason for our pride, an indication of it anyway, is pity. We seek after pity. We want people to pity us. We want people to realize that that we're busier than they are. We have more stuff to do, more responsibilities to bear on our shoulders than they have. And then they will pity us. They'll feel sorry for us because that makes us feel important and we like that. Another one is power. We need to stay in control of things around us because we're proud. And it feeds our pride to, to keep our power in whatever way you have power because you've got to stay in control. Another one is perfectionism. This is something that many, many of us have. I certainly do. Perfectionism. We want to maintain just sort of the, the perfect sort of sense of being and family and, and social standing. And there are people, you know, there are people who who come to a church like ours, and churches like ours are ripe with perfectionism. 
and they come to a church like ours and they feel kind of uncomfortable, like all these people have things together, and I know I don't, so I'm not sure I have a place to fit among these people. Now, if that's you, let me say a word to you. You need to realize that the perfectionistic image that people convey to you is their imperfection. It's their attempt to hide something that they don't want for you to see because they're as messed up as you are, probably even more, and they're just trying to hide it because they're proud. They're they're unwilling to let you see beneath the surface. Another one is position. We hold on to our position, whatever it is, your your job, your, your place on the corporate ladder, your social standing at school. We hold on to our position because... If I don't overachieve and stay busy with, what, with maintaining my position, then I won't keep my position and people will think less of me. I'm too proud for that. Another one, a modern one, is posting. He says, posting. We like to post stuff online, don't we? And that's such an indication of our pride because we want to put this image out there that, that we are, you know, something. And, and you, I mean, you got to wonder, Why? It's, I mean, I'm, 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 it's fine. Social media is just a thing. It's not good or bad or it's just a thing. But, but you know, why that picture of, of, you know, of your new pair of tennis shoes? I don't, I mean, good for you. Why, why that? Why that tweet? Why that whatever? You know, why do we post all this stuff? Because we're trying to, to put an image out there. You know, all of these are manifestations of pride. All of them are. And pride is just the presentation of an image of what we know we're not in hopes that we might become what we wish that we were. And we're not. We are consumed by good things because we're proud. But God is not proud. He's gracious. And because He's gracious... Good things don't just distract us and consume us, but they also reveal us. And this is a redemptive part of the problem of good things. They reveal us. You know, when, when our good things, whatever they are, whatever your good things are, when they're taken away from you, they reveal what's actually in your heart. Or when they are ignored or unappreciated or undervalued by the people around you, then that, I promise you, reveals what's in your heart. Or when our good things are, in our own assessment, better than someone else's good things, then we see what's in our hearts. Are you ready to fight for your good things? It will show you what is in your heart because good things reveal us. I mean, take a look at Martha for a moment. Look at, look at her in this text and see, for one, Martha's default. What does she default to? Here, she defaults to assessing the work of others. Mary, her sister. What work is Mary doing? Nothing. She's just sitting at Jesus' feet. She's not doing the work. And so Martha is assessing Mary's work as being deficient and less than Martha's work. And so she judges Mary for her lack of work. And therefore, look at Martha's aggression. So her heart is beginning to be revealed. See what she does. Luke tells us that she went up to Jesus to speak to him. Now, she didn't just go up to him. She went up to him with aggression. 
I mean, this is an aggressive word here. She, it's a word that, that, that means to, to stand over someone, to come upon someone. Elsewhere in Scripture, you see this word show up in Acts chapter 6 to describe the fact that a mob came upon Stephen and stoned him to death. They were aggressive. In 1 Thessalonians 5, you read that the day of the Lord will come upon you like labor pains when you least expect it. And Martha came upon Jesus with aggression. She was upset because her heart was being revealed. And then you see Martha's accusation, Lord, don't you care? I mean, this is kind of the words of a psalmist, right? Kind of thing you would read in a psalm. Lord, don't you care? And, and, you know, she asks it in such a way to assume a positive answer. But it's very patronizing or matronizing, I guess, maybe, would be the case in, in, for her. In a sense, she's saying to Jesus, look, Jesus, I know that you do care, but maybe you don't realize it yet, and so let me show you why you care. That's the nature of her comment to him. It's an accusation. And then you see her self-pity. She says, my sister has left me to serve alone. Don't you want to feel sorry for me, Jesus? Don't you want to validate me with your pity? That's what she's doing. And then you see even her presumption. She says, tell her then to help me. Do you realize what she's doing here? She is commanding God to do something. In his face, after having come to him aggressively with her complaints and her accusations. This is Martha's heart being revealed. Does it feel familiar? You know, in that Old Testament reading earlier, the Lord, Moses says, tested you to know what was in your hearts. The Israelites in the wilderness, this is what the Lord did with them. He tested them to see what was in their heart, to show them what was in their heart. We pursue many things to fill our hearts. Many things. And sometimes God tests us. He takes those things away so that we can clearly see what is in our heart. So how do you respond when the heat comes to you? When the good things are taken away, when the good things are undervalued, unappreciated, uncared for, how does your heart respond? Beware of good things. They will reveal your heart. But that's a good thing because God is gracious. You know, the Israelites were on the verge of the promised land. And Moses tells them, He humbled you and let you hunger. He gave you manna in the wilderness. Why? So that you might know that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Good things come with great and gracious problems. A disciple must see this so that you will then know the priority of one thing. Jesus' response to Martha is really very tender. If you look at it in verse 41, the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha. He says her name twice. It's a term of endearment. He's he's drawing her in. He's saying, listen, sister, I am with you. I love you. Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. He loves her. He's got a history with her. 
He had raised her brother from the dead. He, he had consoled her in her tears. And not just consoled her, he had raised her up as well from her grief. He loved this woman and he cares for her, he says. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion. In other words, what he says to her here is, I see, Martha, that you're busy preparing a meal. Thank you. But I'm offering a meal in here in the living room that's better. In fact, it's the one meal that you must prioritize. What is it? What had Mary done? What what work was Mary doing here? Well, she wasn't working. She was sitting at his feet, listening to his teaching. Literally, listening to his word. That's That's the word, logos. Listening to his word. Martha wanted to offer bread alone. But man does not live by bread alone. He lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now think about this for a minute. Think think about the words of Jesus as presented in the gospel accounts. As we read about their historical record of the way in which the words of Jesus came across to people in the days of Jesus and how people responded to him. In Mark chapter 1, you read about an occasion where Jesus entered into the synagogue in Capernaum upon the northern shores of the Sea of Galilee. And there he began to teach. And Mark tells us that the people were astonished at his words. They were astonished at his words. Why? Because he taught, like, he taught with authority like no one else taught. In Luke chapter 7, we, we saw months ago, a centurion, a Roman centurion, came to Jesus with great faith. His child was sick at home and dying And this centurion said to Jesus, in amazing faith, he said to Jesus, as Jesus offered to come to his home, the man said, no, Rabbi, don't bother. I'm not worth you coming to my house. But you only say the word, and my child will be healed. And that was the case. Just say the word. This centurion knew the power of the word that Jesus could say. And then in John chapter 18, there's an interesting scene that unfolds in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night of Jesus' betrayal. John records how the the guards come to arrest Jesus and Jesus inquires of them, who are you looking for? And the guards say, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus responds to them saying, I am he. Now those words are Old Testament words that an Israelite would recognize. I am. This is what God said to Moses from the burning bush. Tell Pharaoh that I am sent you. It's a, it's a holy, divine claiming word. Jesus said to these guards, I am he. And John tells us that these guards immediately fell back and crashed to the ground, overwhelmed with the power of the words that came from Jesus' mouth. It's, it's a mystery. It's hard for us to imagine that this is what happened, but this is what happened. The power of his word. A week ago at our presbytery meeting, a Chinese pastor visited and then gave us an account of, of what's going on with some of the Chinese church in the western part of that country. And uh, amazing things happening, people coming to the church um, under circumstances that we can only imagine. And, and he said that on one occasion, there's, there's great persecution happening in these recent years by the government against 
evangelical Bible-preaching churches. And on one occasion, a group of a hundred police officers, government officers, surrounded a church gathering. And they came in and they told the pastor, you need to stop right now and come with us. And the pastor's response to them was, no, we are worshiping God and we will finish our worship service when we finish our worship service. The police withdrew and they waited, circling the building until they were done. And then they arrested the pastor and took him away. Why would the pastor do such a thing? I mean, how could he do that? Because the Word of God is more important to anyone, in any case, than the urgency that surrounds them. The power of God's Word. Why is it so powerful? Because Jesus Christ is the Word by which creation came into being. We read that in John chapter 1. He is the Word of God by which the, the creation of God came into being. He's the source of your very existence. He tells you the very purpose of your life and your being. You know, one woman said to her village after meeting Jesus, she said, you have got to hear this man. He told me all that I ever did. But she only knew the tip of the iceberg. She did not yet know that he also tells you all that you were ever meant to be because he's the source of your very existence. He tells you why you even exist. He is the word of creation. He is the hope of the fall and he is the bringer of redemption. He is the very coming of the kingdom of God. In the midst of an ocean of good things, only one thing is necessary. Only one priority exists. Because only this one thing brings freedom. Only this one thing brings freedom. The, the lawyer and the scribe from the, the parable of the Good Samaritan, you remember the, the, that lawyer was so shocked at the Samaritan's good behavior? In this case, Martha is shocked equally by Mary's bad behavior. What's her bad behavior? Mary is sitting at Jesus' feet. This is something in, in that cultural day that only a man could do. Women didn't sit at rabbis' feet. Only men sat at rabbis' feet. And, and Mary has the gall, Luke tells us, to sit herself down at Jesus' feet. How presumptuous of her. She belongs in the kitchen with Martha making preparations for the meal. At least that's what Martha wanted to assert. But because of the words of Jesus' mouth, Mary is free. She's free from the shackles of custom. She's free from the expectations of society around her. She is free. Now, people today are less and less concerned about morals. Maybe you've noticed that, perhaps. And, you know, some Christians see that and they, they get all anxious and worried about the culture around us, thinking how immoral is the culture around us, as though we should be surprised at such immorality. We shouldn't be surprised at it at all. But, on the other hand, people are very concerned with freedom. That's, that's very much a value of our culture, of, of human beings in our day and age, and rightly so. And what we need to recognize is that freedom is a much better entry point to the gospel than morals ever could be. Because P. 
people are enslaved to all the good things that are surrounding them. They can't do away with them. They are enslaved to all the the good things that abound around them. Only one thing, the word of life from the Son of God brings freedom. And therefore, only one thing brings rest. Mary is free to rest at the feet of Jesus. Now, this is ironic if you think about it. I mean, again, try to imagine who this is, who's the guest of honor at whose feet she is sitting. She's resting at his feet. This is ironic because in the personal presence of the holy creator God, in the personal presence of the eternal second person of the Trinity, Mary is finally free to rest. Now, this is not what people tend to think. This is very counter to our our normal intuition, isn't it? And you know that's true just by the preacher jokes that abound. You know, when a preacher shows up in a room and people realize, oh, it's the preachers there, everybody kind of gets to be on their good behavior. I get that all the time. And preachers get that. Alex, get ready because people will, you know, he's wearing the robe. You better behave. And that's kind of the way that we, you know, we assume that this is the way that it works. But what if God himself is in the room? What if God himself is there? Are you all uptight thinking, oh, I I better better zip my lips and quiet my heart. God might notice me. I better behave. This is the way that we think. But what if God is in the room? God is sitting in the living room with Mary. And what's she doing? She's resting. She's resting in the presence of the Holy One. The ones who have faith in Him are holy. This is why she can rest by faith in Jesus. This is justification by faith alone in Christ alone. This is what we as a church invite each other to receive, to receive the rest of justification by faith alone in Christ alone, trusting in the righteousness of Jesus. The ones in his presence who trust in him are holy as he is holy and and can actually rest. We invite each other to step onto the ancient path, the good way where we find rest for our souls. Only one thing brings rest. And finally, only one thing is forever. <clears throat> Martha, Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Now, you realize, I think that we all have a vocation. Every one of us has <clears throat> a vocation, a calling as it were, in this world to do some work. It's part of being a human being. And it's really very important. You know, teenagers are at the point in their lives where they're trying to figure it out and trying to discern what is my calling in this world? What has God gifted me to do and given me opportunities to do for work in this world? Teenagers are kind of at that point of trying to figure that out. Young adults have dived into something. Um, you know, whether they're content with it or not, whether it's overwhelming to them or not, they've dived into something as a vocation at this point in their lives. Middle-aged adults are questioning whether the calling that they think they have is really what they ought to be doing. And those of us who are more advanced along in this life are, are wondering, is that all? I mean, how did it pass by so quickly? And have I done the things at this point that I should have been doing? I mean, at each stage we are easily obsessed with the notion of vocation and calling. 
But the reality is, Jesus is the only obsession that will not crush you. You can be obsessed with your vocation, your sense of purpose, all day long, and it will crush you. You'll never figure it out apart from Christ. He is the only obsession that will not crush you because His Word is the only thing that will not fade and disappoint and disappear. It cannot be taken away because His kingdom is forever. Jesus is speaking His Word to you. When you sit down with Scripture, when you gather for worship, when you engage even by faith with a half-baked sermon, Jesus is speaking His words to you. He's engaging with you. By His Spirit, the Son of God is holding out to you the one thing that is priority. So disciples of Jesus, listen, you have many things in your life, good things, good things they are. But pay attention. You are distracted by them. You are consumed by them. But you are being graciously revealed by the God who loves you. And so the Word of God brings freedom and rest forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, help us to believe your good news and help us to recognize the ways in which so many good things call us and draw us in different directions. And Father, we pray that you would help us uh, instead, even as we enjoy those things, to recognize that you and your word are the priority that gives us life. Father, help us to believe that. Help us to, to serve you in resting in you, in trusting in your righteousness, and in being joyful because you have made us your own. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.